Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Today's episode is part three of our special series about Mao's Little Red Book for Reading Revolution, where we read and discuss work written by or that inspired leftists of color. Our discussion today will focus on the impact of the Little Red Book among revolutionary groups around the world. For this, we read chapter 14 of the book, Mao's Little Red Book, A Global History. The chapter by Bill Mullen is entitled, By the Book, Quotations from Chairman Mao and the Making of Afro-Asian Radicalism, 1966 to 1975. You can find a full copy of the book chapter for free on our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also visit our Patreon to make a donation for a dollar or more per month to help us keep all of our content, including free books and articles, 100% free. Also, be sure to check us out on social media, such as Facebook or Twitter, by searching Left POC and to rate and review us on iTunes. Now to continue with background on Mao Zedong. During part two, I ended in the early 1940s, as China's Red Army was able to beat back thousands of Japanese troops. Towards the end of the decade, Mao, the Communist Party, and his forces began to engage in a series of reforms set on redistributing land and resources to the poorer peasantry by any means necessary including by way of punishment in work camps and even executions of wealthier peasants and landlords. Though these moves, among others, were initially successful in redistributing wealth, subsequent miscalculations in agricultural programs resulted in mass famine and spiraled into intra-party paranoia that had a negative effect on the larger population. Furthermore, around this time, as the nation moved into the 1950s, tensions between China and the Soviet Union resulted in the Sino-Soviet split. In the mid-1960s, as China attempted to regain economic stability following the split, the Communist Party, still under Mao's direction, began the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, a new series of reforms meant to further instill their version of communism among the population. It was during this time when the Little Red Book was published and disseminated among the population as a sort of guide for communist principles. As in many cases of widespread national, political, and cultural overhaul, the Cultural Revolution yielded mixed results, including negative consequences for ethnic groups that were thought to fall quote-unquote outside the realm of the ideal citizen as defined by the state. Further inter-party tensions made the implementation of this nationwide program a challenge. Nevertheless, it was also this period that is credited with modernization, greater industrialization, and benefits for the Chinese working class. It was also during this period when China began to form alliances with newly established post-colonial governments throughout Africa and to connect with marginalized groups beyond its borders in the larger global struggle against imperialism. After struggling with decades of deteriorating health, Mao Zedong died following multiple heart attacks in 1976. Though there are countless forms of homage to Mao throughout China and the world, the Little Red Book remains one of the most salient and long-lasting material examples of his legacy. And now on to our discussion of some of the book's impact abroad. Hey Richard, what's up? Hello, hello. Uh, Nice to be back. Yeah, we had, I mean, (laughs) nice to be back. We had like a week off uh, (laughs) because we recorded right before Christmas. Which, by the like, our episode with Sharice was 
pretty fabulous. I always love having her on. I mean, this is the second time she's been on, but it's always a joy to have her because like every time she talks, she spits so much information out that like you feel like you need a notepad when you're listening to the episode, you know? So it was kind of like an, it was, it was fitting that her episode was recorded right before Christmas and released on Christmas Eve. It was like a little gift. I joked and said it was like a gift under the tree or a candle in your menorah. Um, for those of you who celebrate Christmas and or Hanukkah. So yeah, how was yours, by the way? Did you do anything? Did you have any fun over the holiday break? Uh, you know, not too bad. It was uh, not as relaxing as the Christmas break used to be as a kid. Uh, capitalism <laughs> makes it a bit more stressful uh, as you move towards adulthood. But uh, it's uh, otherwise, it was a nice experience. I still got to see friends and family, and that's always nice. So yeah, uh, that was a great part of it. Did you have any like Trump loving relatives you had to get straight or no? Are you good in that department? Uh, no, nah, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nah, my, my, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Well, well, my family kind of uh, extricated themselves from that part of their family uh, gotcha. a long time ago. And so, That's like, uh, the there was possibly some floating around or whatever, but nobody nobody bothers to talk about that stuff. We got plenty of other random things to chat about. <laughs> That's good. I, cause I feel like. Twitter becomes overrun during the holidays with like mainly white people, but some other, some people of color too, talking about their like problematic family members. And then the debate becomes whether or not they should say something or, you know, um, stop going to family events or whatever. So yeah, it's that always is like a, something. That is a, something I picked up on and I thought about as, as stressful. And so I'm thankful that I didn't have to, to deal with that because I'm sure. At best, most of my family would fall somewhere on the liberal spectrum. So yeah. <laughs> the less uh, negative stuff it has to come up, the, the more. But, you know, as such as life, uh, little bits of knowledge leak in. And so uh, it's not as if I didn't let any revolutionary talk slip into the conversation, but it didn't spark any any conflict. So that's always positive. Right. You weren't like sitting in the corner with a beret on and a gun or anything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not, 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 not these holidays yet, but you know, who, who knows what 2020 may hold. Give us 10 years um, or one, if, according to you, if we're looking at 2020. Oh, yeah, because the election, oh, God, the election, the election is happening next year. I'm not ready. I mean, I know that I'm turning this Mao episode into like an end of the year wrap up, but honestly, like, I don't think I'm ready for 2020 yet. Like how I feel like Trump got elected like last year and it's been four years already pretty much. So yeah. we've, we've, we've gone through one um, term of his and it feels like we're still somewhere in 2015 or 2016 to me. And I think partially because a lot of the, political rhetoric hasn't really moved much from then like people are still having these same debates along the same fault lines of you know liberal progressive and then i, I don't know i keep ta i keep seeing all of these like terrible resistance takes that are like absorbing john bolton into some sort of <laughs> revolution and i'm just like no john bolton is also still the enemy you know like it's it's very frustrating to kind of watch how yeah. this revolutionary fervor if you want to put it that way that kind of came about when trump was elected was just squandered on like liberal slightly neoconservative nonsense but yeah i mean with like uh, even you know ostensibly neoliberal outlets uh like msnbc with john brennan uh, yeah. and 
Bill Crystal and Nicole Wallace, and it's like propagandists from the Bush administration. It's 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 a generally concerning phenomena and trend, yeah. and seeing it integrated into a variety of rhetoric. I mean, it's possibly oddly oddly emblematic of how this works in various other you know revolutionary resistance type movements throughout the world, and with in some cases literally the same CIA actors at play. Right. It's, it is really scary. And like, I try not to watch MSNBC anymore. Um, but when I do end up watching it, like, you know, if I'm just, if I want some background noise or whatever, and also during the impeachment trials, you know, the, the hearings I was watching sporadically, I think one of the most disturbing things is just the constant emphasis on American exceptionalism and the parading and applauding of, you know, intelligence officials and and things like that and the recuperation of really ghoulish awful people that were the architects of mass violence and state terror around the world like it is it is very it's very disturbing to see these people um raised up and celebrated in any way much less by a news outlet that pretends to be um left-leaning or a democratic aligned democratic party aligned i should say but it doesn't even seem to be that anymore. It's very conservative right now. Um, they spent a good hour or so the other day on Morning Joe, like disparaging the prospect of Medicare for all. And it was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen because I'm sitting here like, it's kind of interesting if you watch MSNBC and then you use Twitter at the same time. Like if you have your Twitter open while you're watching MSNBC, because like all up and down Twitter is like around that time where people complaining about how much Obamacare was or like, problems getting their healthcare worked out or how much they were paying healthcare providers um, for like the most basic things, people not going to the doctor, et cetera. There were so, I mean, you've, I've seen an uptick of tweets like that lately. Mm-hmm. And so it was very strange to be watching MSNBC panelists who all make, you know, in the millions <laughs> talking about how much, how dangerous, like literally using the word dangerous to describe Medicare for all because people will quote lose their health care. And I'm like, half of us don't have health care now. And then when we do have health care, we're spending an arm and a leg on it. Like get real. You know what I mean? I just it, they're so out of touch. I know that they're defending corporate interests, but I also think some people actually believe this because their experience doesn't match that of the majority of the population. Yeah. It's it's a it's a scary phenomenon. And when taken into account the the numbers and the influence that the outlets that are spreading that message have compared to the outlets that are countering it, it uh, is even more concerning. Yeah. Because there's no alternative right now, at least not on mainstream, not in mainstream media. The closest we can get is like, I don't know, in print media, there are some alternatives, but they're not widely read, you know, and things, I think of things like in these times or the nation, um, which are fine. I mean, they're they're on the left side, of course, of the liberal spectrum, but they don't they don't get enough circulation, and print media in general doesn't get the same circulation as as television and stuff. So, I just I don't know, like yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, the background noise aspect of it, people generally understand the dynamic of you know Fox News indicates to the right, CNN is supposed to be the center, and then MSNBC is a, a more leftist background noise. And with the more right-leaning the MSNBC becomes and so forth, uh, CNN and 
uh, Fox, the the further away out of the Overton window actual leftist politics becomes in uh, exactly. at least a particular section of mainstream politics. Exactly. And I think also, you know, it kind of forecloses the prospect of leftist ideas being possible. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you have a constant onslaught on every single TV news channel, including local news, which is run predominantly by conservative, you know, larger conglomerates, um, the message basically that you're getting every single day is this is not possible. This is not feasible. You know, this is too radical or like will harm you in some way. And it's just brain, a constant brainwashing, you know, like, I don't know what to say. And I don't know. It's very hard to disrupt that. Like, even in, I mean, I think a lot of us encourage and are encouraged to speak to people on an individual basis, you know, like family members and friends and stuff as a way to kind of hopefully persuade them to take a look at some of the ideas that are being put out by people on the left. But um, I think the the battle is an uphill one because <laughs> these organizations are not organizations, but like TV outlets and stuff have way more money and time. And I don't know a lot like we're just a little podcast you know we make 350 dollars somewhere around that a month and these these tv stations are getting like billions of dollars from corporate you know corporate headquarters <laughs> every every couple of months so i don't know it's it's sometimes when i feel down i just try to remember that like okay people overthrew colonialism and there were slave revolts that eventually undid slavery you know so I try to just think about these moments in history to not feel completely down. <laughs> like revolution mm-hmm. and change can happen, but it's just sometimes it's such a daunting, like the, the prospect feels really far away and far off and people are dying in the process. And I don't know, I don't know yeah. how to feel other than down sometimes. All right. uh, I, I have a similar situation where, you know, it's just, think back you know when some of the stuff we've read has helped you know like about people you know scrapping together pieces of the texts that we're reading and waiting in lines and uh risking their lives just to have access to them and it was like and and various levels of successes but it's also to say that like the struggle goes on and it's because they struggled that i can appreciate both their struggle and the the knowledge that's been shared uh from again, their struggle, and then also the text that they were struggling to uh, interact with. For sure. Um, yeah, I think that is a point of, I don't know, optimism, <laughs> like something we can look forward to. Uh, but on that note, uh, switching to the text that we're talking about now. So for the past few episodes, um, for the first episode of this month, we read uh, Mao's Little Red Book. We read the first half. The second episode was also on Mao, where we talked about the second half of his book. Um, and then, of course, we had uh, Sharice Bernanceli as our guest, which will kind of tie in her talk in a moment with the book um, that we read. But also, this for this discussion, we're actually not talking specifically about the, the Mao's Little Red Book text, but actually the sort of social context, the socio-historical context, um, and its effect or impact on other social movements. And so the book that we read, um, well, we didn't read the whole book, but we read parts of the book um, called <laughs> The Little Red Book. Um, it's about the impact uh, beyond just China. And so the book itself discusses, um, you know, the history in a global context, um, the ways that this 
this text and sort of even the to some degree the revolution in China also affected other movements. Um, and we talked, we're going to talk specifically about the introduction, a chapter that was written about the connection between the Black Panthers, the Asian American movement, and Mao. And then we're also going to discuss briefly um, the conclusion. So uh, why don't we start with the introduction slash preface. And I should say, by the way, I'm going to include a copy of the chapter that discusses the Black Panthers and the Asian American movement on the um, Patreon page. And this will be free for everyone. So if you want other parts of the book or you want to have access to the book, et cetera, please just send me a DM. And also I noted this on the Patreon and as well on social media, but just as a reminder, if there's ever a text that we read that, or I should say not read because every text that we read for uh, reading revolution, I post a copy of in PDF form or whatever on the Patreon page for everyone to access. But if there's ever anything in show notes for the episodes, so as a reminder, all of the podcasts, I include show notes. So, you know, texts and mag like magazine articles or journal articles and books and sometimes um, media that people can access that are related to the episode. Mm -hmm. If you ever see anything there that you can't find that you need a copy of, please just send me a DM. Um, many times I just list things that I already have. Um, and in some cases, even if I can't get you a PDF like from the internet, sometimes because of university um, library access, I can just download you a version of it in sometimes in another format. So please do not hesitate to contact me um, you can send me a message on Patreon or you can send me a message on um, Facebook or Twitter and just ask like, oh, do you happen to have a digital version of this? And I'll be more than happy to share it with you. Um, so all that said, uh, let's talk about the intro for Mao's Little Red Book, A Global History. Um, Richard, why don't you start us off with just a little overview and then I know you had some specific interventions, as did I, um, some things that kind of stood out to you about the inter the introduction, and then we can keep going with the rest that we read. Yes. Well, uh, what I picked out from the introduction generally was uh, one of the things that kind of kept hitting me over the head throughout uh, reading the text and just kind of the additional, you know, random Googling I did as I was uh, engaging with the quotations text uh, initially which was just how widespread uh, the quotations book and just Mao in general was during the time of his uh, life and the revolutionary context. Uh, I had heard before, you know, but it was always for me in the context of something that happened over there and didn't affect us or uh, people like me or people that I could relate to or whatever. So it was just kind of something outside of my purview and only under this kind of revolutionary study have I encountered it prior to now, but then most extensively in this reading. And so in one of the ways that I thought that was really uh, encapsulated was uh, the phrase, <clears throat> the little red book was a weapon of mass instruction, which is to say that this uh, small book of quotations was used throughout the world uh, as a critical piece of learning material that then was built upon for a variety of revolutionary acts and groups and uh, so forth uh, throughout a variety of places that I had no idea that the personally that this book had had that kind of influence or that uh, historically it hadn't been relayed to me in my tr traditional education. And so 
that was one of the kind of overarching things that I pulled out of there. But uh, in general, uh, some of the other aspects of it, it covers, uh, I guess, kind of the general idea of, of Mao. And I, it puts a little bit and speaks to some things that I'm not quite familiar with at this moment in my studies about the juxtaposition between uh, the revolutionary movement under Mao and in China versus uh, the USSR or in in uh, juxtaposition to the USSR in the United States. And it, it touches on that in some ways, which is definitely sparked more curiosity and I think for more research and understanding. Uh, but I don't have much to comment on it now personally. It talks uh, about, uh, I guess, one of the other aspects was there's a lot of kind of talk about the cultural movement as a weapon and the place of weapons in uh, a revolutionary uh, type uh, warfare scenario in that uh, weapons are tools and that the true power is in the, in the people and the people are determinant of the outcome, not the weapons. And so one of the other things that is touched on a lot in the, in the introduction is the context of uh, the Cold War and nuclear war or the concept of nuclear war and the concept of where nuclear weapons played as this was during the time when France and uh, the UK and China developed uh nuclear weapons to match the u.s arsenal and it was also one of the things that it talks about uh in the intro is it mentions uh, that mao saw imperialism as kind of the the main enemy of sorts as rather than focused on capitalism and relies on both text from the quotations and it's also mentioned throughout uh some other parts of this text specifically uh, to that effect um before i touch more i guess on the uh the kind of atomic aspect of uh the intro is there some other aspects that you wanted to touch on yeah so i would say for sure like i agree with you that there's a lot in the intro about the sino-soviet split or at least i should say references made to it there's not a ton of background on it um and it made me kind of say okay this is definitely an area that i want to learn more about and I think that would offer um, even greater sort of like historical context to Mao's Little Red Book. Um, and perhaps as well, kind of like why, I think, it, I think it helps us understand as well why certain groups in other countries decided to pick up Maoism, um, or at least emphasize it at this time more than, than uh, principles from the USSR. Um, it kind of created like a, a competing force in a way. Um, part of that has to do with, like I kind of have discussed before, but like this idea of racial otherness or proximity on the basis of um, fighting imperial forces and kind of positioning, you know, China as a, a large, humongous country of people of color, right? Kind of making that um, a, a starting point for people's entryway into uh, communism or left ideology as a whole. So I thought that that was interesting and definitely something I want to learn more about um, just because I don't know a ton about uh, what was happening in China at the time in terms of the, the revolution and also the growth and spread of communist ideology. The other thing I think that uh, the intro touched on that was fascinating is all the discussion about, as you mentioned as well, but I'm going to add a little another, another part of this, um, the discussion of the atom bomb and <laughs> kind of like, how Mao took the discussion of the atom bomb and like 
so basically the book kind of, at least the intro of the book kind of posits this idea that like some people have found Mao's um, mention and, and sort of rhetoric around the atom bomb to be dismissive. Like the, the book is basically saying like, sometimes people look at what he said and, and kind of think about, think that what he said about the atom bomb was, or the, the atomic bomb, I should say was like, whatever, you know, like he kind of had a nonchalance about it. Um, and the book kind of takes that to task and says, that's not quite what was going on. It tries to offer some nuance, um, and a sort of alternative reading to, what he was actually thinking when he said those things um, and why he said it the way he did. And I would also just add one other point um, that I thought was interesting in reading the introduction is that it talked a lot about um, introspection and the chapter on the Black Panthers and the Asian American movement also does that. So we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. Um, but this idea that a lot of the Little Red Book actually focused on the war from within, right? And like this idea of not just starting a revolution beyond yourself with others in this like community, right? This idea of having a shared struggle, but also it talks a lot about the internal struggle happening within every man and woman um, who's engaged in this sort of adventure, if you will, or, or uh, journey is a better word, a journey of their own. Um, then in terms of questioning their way of thinking about the world and, and in particular questioning our own behaviors, right? Like how are we, I guess, sort of reifying um, certain things that are that are harmful to our larger community, and how can we kind of root that out even within ourselves? So I thought that that was that those aspects of the intro definitely stood out to me, um, and they were kind of like things that I held in the back of my head when I read the other chapters. Um, also, I should just add, like this book is from from just glancing at the chapters alone. Um, there's a lot going on in this book that I definitely would like to revisit. So we might at some point. Um, discuss other chapters from the book later on in like future episodes or something like that. But I, I really thought that it was like, I highly recommend actually, if you have the time um, to check out the book, because there are a lot of fascinating essays and, and I don't know, like I think discussions about the impact of Mao in areas that are definitely under discussed. And that's something else that you mentioned as well. Like you had mentioned sort of in passing when we were talking about this before, um, how much of an impact it had that's not really recognized in the U.S. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Uh, yeah, like in in discovering in, like that this was a you know important text and all that, I had to do further research. One of the things that I came across is essentially that it's between this particular text and the Bible for the most widely publicized or distributed, sold copies uh, in the world of, in all of all time. So. It's a very big, big, like impactful piece of writing. And that's quotations. And also on that list uh, beneath the the Quran and uh, the Chinese dictionary is Chairman Mao's poems. And then also in the top five is selected articles of Mao Zedong. So he's about four of the like three or four of the top five slots, depending on exactly how you count uh, distribution versus sales and so on and so forth. And so clearly one of the most prolific people in uh, that existed in the last hundred years. Like that seems to be, in my opinion, an indisputable fact, regardless of how you feel about why he was prolific or what, what he said or any of those things. And so one of the things that I mentioned uh, before was that to me, it's a scholastic travesty that it's not, he's not more integrated, even if it was going to be a treatment of, you know, uh, propaganda against him. It, it just feel, felt to me that, it's not done justice uh, in the 
like typical, at least of the Western education experience that I had, uh, justice to the influence that he had. And so that was one aspect of it. One of the other aspects that's kind of well encapsulated by this book is that there's several different countries in which that there's a uh, quite a bit of information and linking of uh, this text to movements in that time. And as Wendy said, I encourage anybody that finds one that uh, perhaps relates to them in addition to the the Black Panther one or uh, more than the Black Panther one for them, particularly because it relates to some sort of historical familial connection for themselves to definitely pursue that and, and learn more about it because there's just a lot of information here that I feel is just generally deprived us uh, in Western education. At least that's my experience of that. Um, oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say mine too. I mean, I said this in previous episodes, but mine as well, obviously. Like I'm learning as I read this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm learning every time we pick up one of these books for this discussion, I'm learning a lot more that I've never been exposed to either. And again, one of the things I always comment on is you can go your entire life in the United States education system all the way up to the top. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm finishing a PhD right now and there's so many things that I didn't learn about until I did my MA and then started working on my PhD. And it's, it's ridiculous that there's so much history. And I think just like political thought that is, that we're deprived of because of our, our country's um, politics, you know what I mean? Like because of its position as an imperial state and because of its position as, you know, a hyper-capitalist country, there's a lot that we, we aren't exposed to and we have to dig up on our own. Um, and that's why, like, that's why I, d- I wanted to do left POC. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, I felt mm-hmm. like it was at least one outlet through which p- everyone could have access to this information and wouldn't necessarily need to, like, spend, you know, 10, 20, 30 additional years in school to learn about. Like, this information should be public knowledge. Um, and I think sometimes it's just a matter. It's just a matter of, like, people being interested but not necessarily knowing what books to choose or, like, what people to look up, you know? And so that's why I think not only, you know, as part of the project, like the part of the project's goal is to to note that there is leftist radicalism among people of color around the world and how those movements were often led by and comprised of people of color. But beyond that, also, I think thinking about and reading about and learning more about these movements and, and their importance um, through these these kinds of readings that we're doing. You know what I mean? Like it, it becomes a kind of syllabus, an alternative syllabus that we haven't had access to, like none of us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's why it's, I don't know. I get a lot out of, I personally get a lot out of just doing the readings myself and like we're picking them, you know, but some Mm -hmm. of them I haven't, I've never read in my life. And Mao's Little Red Book is one of them. Yeah. And so that's when all that is exactly what I was thinking with the reading revolution as well as in following in the kind of exploring these texts and sharing that experience with other people, because it is just kind of one, it's, it's, uh, it's daunting, you know, like picking up some of these books and and really engaging with them and and pulling out what's there. And once you get over some of the basic kind of linguistic issues that exist because of the absence of a lot of these terms or concepts existing in Western uh, education. Once you get past that uh, hump, which can be a bit uh, at first, but when you 
really engage with the material, it becomes much more digestible and much more understandable. And then as in, in this case, once I started to understand what Mal was saying, I was like, oh, well, that's why I haven't heard anything about it. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. This, this is not the kind of thing that you would want, like, because the, the Western imperialist propaganda stuff can't stand up to, you know, contradictions being challenged and confronted and, you know, argued against. It has to just sub completely subvert them and try and hide them and make them as if they don't exist. And uh, that's one of the things I think from the, uh, it was a line through Mao Zedong thought was that, uh, that both self-reflection and self-criticism and then also uh, that obviously that extends to the party and any political apparatus that extends out of the self. And so like that difference uh, I think uh, is also kind of uh, described as a, an inevitable uh, all of these things uh, related to me and throughout the text that the the influence and the availability and the power of Mao Zedong thought was both in the self-reflection and self-criticism and, and then extending that to uh, not just to oneself or not just to one's party or not just to one's political opposition, but uh, a combination of all of the above and maintaining that was critical. And towards in the conclusion, they talk about some of the cult of Mao Zedong uh, and, and kind of some of the uh, other ways that the quotations book was used in ways that probably don't quite reflect the essence of what I think a lot of people were pulling out of there. And I think that's something that people also have to be aware of uh, as where we also encounter with uh, some important and prolific uh, Black Panther Party members that went on to uh, less uh, revolutionary politics. Yeah, because <laughs> I think, you know, on that note, sometimes I, I wonder if it's a matter much like the Bible or any other, you know, important text is that people become obsessed with the quote itself and not the application thereof. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm -hmm. okay, good. You know this passage or you know, you've memorized this, but now what about putting it into practice, you know? And that's the part that's lacking in many cases. And I think also just in terms of accountability, right? Because people may be knowledgeable and know a lot of stuff and, you know, like I, I've seen sometimes where people be like, oh, you should read this person or read that person. And then you're going to be a better socialist. But then it's not just about reading, right? It's also about living this and applying these things. And I think that people sometimes can, like, I think sometimes people believe that just knowing about something means you've done all the work that you need to do, you know? And obviously it goes beyond that. It's not just about knowing a, a page number or of a text or something, but it's also about like how you put this into practice in your life and how you interact with other people in your life. Um, if you're, whether or not you're actually applying this stuff. Um, so on that note, let's go ahead and transition to our discussion of the chapter about the black Panthers and the Asian American movement. So anyway, like the, the chapter itself, just to give a quick overview of what the chapter is about. So the author goes into the ways that the Black Panther Party um, and some of its offshoots 
kind of took up uh, Chairman Mao's quotations um, in some cases as he opens with, you know, they literally like photocopied them and sold them for a dollar or sometimes just gave them out uh, to members of the party to read. And then it talks about the way that the the book was not only circulated throughout these organizations, but throughout the larger community. Um, and sometimes not just the physical book, but the ideas from the book that were then applied um, in very literal ways in some cases, like there were some groups that started, um, you know, somewhat like community community militaries almost. Um, and in the, the chapter also does a good, good job of kind of breaking down the ways that um, Mao was influential as well among Asia, the Asian American movement and subsequently a lot of the student movements that happened in the 60s and 70s that led to what we now know as like, you know, cultural studies and area studies programs um, that did not exist in the university system before then. Um, the other thing that the author, I think, you know, like kind of sets us up for, um, which is helpful, is thinking about some of the failures as well. And I don't want to say failures, but like, I guess I should say that at the the attempt at application that didn't fully um, work out as people had expected, and and the ways that even within that process there were some um, you know moments of learning and differentiation of the application and things like that, and also sometimes um, you know like debates, if you will, between different radical organizations on you know which aspects of this book should we actually be putting into practice and and which one should we just recognize as this is just China specific or this is perhaps not, not relevant for our time. We need something else. Um, and I think, you know, uh, we can we get into more specifics in a moment. Um, but one of the things that I just found really fascinating about this is, you know, as I've mentioned before, like all of these revolutionary groups, and even when you look at you know, like anti-colonial struggle and things like that. A, a lot of them emphasize the significance of reading and they emphasize the importance of actually understanding, um, you know, other, other people's ideas and ideologies in the process of like doing their own thing. You know, I, it's interesting that no one is saying we're going to just start from scratch and like, <laughs> like do everything from zero. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually kind of being, they're being inspired by these other revolutions that are happening. Um, and that includes Mao's movement himself, his own, his own movement. You know, like we talked in previous episodes about how the little red book even draws upon, you know, a lot of, um, or his speeches, I guess I should say that were cited in the little red book, draw upon a lot of Marx and other, other philosophers and idea and political ideologies. And so I think that it's really cool because I think sometimes what ends up happening, and I see this every now and then, this kind of sentiment where you don't need to read anything, you know, and I'm like, no, no, like revolutionaries were reading a lot. And it's also cool. I thought that there, he, he mentions throughout this chapter, this idea of like the reading groups. There were so many reading groups that popped up around this book um, where they would literally like, you know, take on a chapter and read it with the group once a week or whatever. I mean, it's really, it's fascinating. And I think that it kind of touches on like what we had talked about in the previous episode on now, which is like, where is our current day example of this? Um, I recognize that reading groups still exist and whatnot, but where is our revolutionary reading group that's happening among uh, people who are not just like academics, right. Or who are not like academia adjacent. Um, because in the, in this, in this chapter, they talk about like, you know, auto workers that were having reading groups like this, this is amazing. You know what I mean? So like, how can we get back to doing something like that? Um, and what does that look like mm -hmm. at the, at the community level 
and where can it start? I really appreciate that point. And I like DOS Capital is, you know, very informative and uh, I've engaged with it, but I don't think it's going to fill that role. And it's you know? huge. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, for practical and for a variety of reasons. But I mean, if nothing else, because it's like part of the appeal of a uh, little red book was that it was little. Like, yeah, it, it was compact and the formatting of it was digestible and, you know, you could engage with it. And that provided also some weaknesses, as, as I alluded to earlier, but it also uh, made it, as this text mentioned or calls it essentially uh, the, the most available, accessible and fastest way for young radicals to imagine themselves undertaking these tasks. Mm -hmm. So it, it's like the idea is like. Dot Capital does a great job of explaining a lot of things. And to your other point, uh, Marx even, ca uh, you know, credits uh, Hegel for a lot of what he just talks about and, you know, doesn't give himself nearly as much credit as we've gone on to give him post his writing. And mm -hmm. so like the, that theme of these people not starting from scratch is uh, uh, goes back to even the earlier writers and um, Hegel, I'm sure, refers to others and so on and so forth as far back as we can trace. And I'm sure those go back even further to oral traditions that were lost to history. So uh, one of the things uh, like that came out of this uh, that was part of that was a, a little black book uh, that was also kind of a... a a version of this that was lost history that I mentioned before, but uh, I, I do think that we're due for another one of those. So uh, to that point, I think it's important to have something, a text that is small, digestible, kind of like the, the, the right kind of obsessed with their pocket constitutions and recognize and wielded similarly as a weapon. Uh, and as Mao mentions, Mao Zedong thought, uh, arming the people with Mao Zedong thought is, is essentially, while recognizes the value of weapons, uh, is critically important. So the way that the Black Panther Party was able to uh, seize on it, and uh, as Wendy mentioned, Huey would just say, well, this principle here is not quite applicable. So what we need to do is change it where it says Chinese people, the Communist Party, change it to the Black Panther Party. Right. Now we got it. <laughs> and like so, Chinese I mean, people to Black people. Like, yeah. Black people. yeah. And, it's, and sometimes it's a Sometimes it's that simple and sometimes it's going to take more work. But the idea wasn't that we are just going to literally like Xerox these ideas and then put them on there and then just make that work. It's going to be we're going to Xerox them, generate the ideas and in communication with our communities, figure out how these are applicable, how they aren't and, and figure out how to bring them into action. And that was what was critical and important. And both in the Black Panther Party and in a, uh, a various uh, Asian groups that are discussed in the chapter, we see that. That, that it was immediately these ideas were brought in, the discussions were had, and action was taken. And it was a very rapid process and led to similar programs like uh, other breakfast programs or community need programs uh, that we saw from the Black Panthers. Right. I think also what's fascinating is in the beginning of the chapter, they talk about the fact that not only was Mao, you know, incredibly important to the Black Panthers, especially the um, the chapter in San Francisco, um, and I think that's also in large part because of the large Asian American influence in, in California, right? I mean, you have these groups interacting with each other on a regular basis. Again, something else that's often left out of history, right? Like mm -hmm. if you think about Asian black relations nowadays, 
it's not something that's, I mean, it's hardly discussed. Um, and I think we see more of a focus on tensions between the communities as opposed to these like histories are actually doing a lot of work together and overlap uh, between their struggles. But anyway, that aside, um, the other thing that they discuss is the fact that not only were they reading um, Chairman Mao, but they were also reading a lot of other writers, especially in particular focus on the fact that they weren't from Europe, right? So they were reading Franz Fanon, they were reading Malcolm X, they were reading Che Guevara, they were reading Castro, they were reading these other, um, and, and also I should say interacting with, in, in some cases, you know, literally going to African countries who were in the process of decolonizing. There's a really great book about this that I'll include in the show notes. Um, but uh, it's by Brenda Gale Plummer, I believe is her last name. And she talks about, you know, the interaction between um, African-American groups, some that were a little bit more academic and arguably more conservative, but nevertheless, that were engaging with um, Africans at this point time from a variety of different countries and, and territories, um, you know, in their own decolonization struggle. And it's also something that I researched, but just from like the Brazilian side, right? Um, so you see this engagement goes far beyond just reading a couple quotes. Like this is, they're serious, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it's, it's really great that you have this kind of overlap. And while there's certainly there are certainly moments of, of things being lost in translation. And I, and I mean that both literally, literally and figuratively, because one of the things that they mentioned is that most of the black Panthers, of course, did not know how to read or speak, you know, Mandarin. Um, so they weren't looking at the original text, right. They were looking at, at English translations. And of course, certain things are missed or lost in that process. Um, and then it's being translated once again, not only from the English text, but then to be a community based focus. You know what I mean? Like when they're inserting and they're saying like, let's talk about how black people fit into this. Um, but I also think that, that, and then the author argues that that also adds to complications in the process. Um, and the author talks about the ways that um, the Boggs family, so Grace Lee Boggs and her husband and based in Detroit, were kind of taking issue with some of this application um, of, of Mao Zedong's work because they felt like it did it was sometimes just like a copy, a copy paste, right. As opposed to a real contextualization of like, okay, what are black people experiencing in the U S that's different from what's happening in China or what happened in China. The other thing I thought that was really fascinating that the author touches on is the fact that like the black Panthers at the end of the day, even though they're from, they, the, the members are from an oppressed group at the end of the day, they're operating in the center of, imperialism and capitalism, right? Like they are based mm -hmm. in the United States. And so the author of the chapter Mullen, you know, he talks about how like that offered complications as well, because there was this constant tension of like, how do you apply the, like the revolutionary anti-imperialist ideas, ideas of Mao and people like him in the center of, you know, like hyper-imperialism and hyper-capitalism. Yeah, I found one of the quotes that kind of touched on that was, uh, I guess it was mentioned on page 250, uh, talking about in various ethnic studies programs, uh, San Francisco State and Berkeley, uh, there was a, it, one of the people that in the text recalls being introduced to Mao's quotations in the newly founded Asian Studies course. Uh, 
And he says, as radical intellectuals, he writes, many of us were particularly struck by Mao's comment that if you want knowledge, you must take part in the practice of changing society. If you want to know the taste of a pear, you must change the pear by eating it yourself. If you want to know the theory and methods of revolution, you must take part in the revolution. Like, And so for me, what that meant was that uh, studying and the theorizing and the application of other theories or in like trying to uh, envision the application of other theories to your uh, particular circumstances or material conditions can only take you so far in order to really truly know revolution and what it takes you have to practice it and practicing revolution goes beyond studying and it goes into practice and action and the the revolutionary acts beyond uh the understanding of theory and so into the application of theory and so i think part of that is essentially that there's an aspect to revolution that has to be you know trial and error like there's no, you can't develop a perfect revolution a perfect plan for a revolution or anything along those lines and then execute it exactly and then that will be the end and you'll you arrive at a utopian uh, conclusion that uh, revolution is learned and understood through practice and through a consistent and constant both critique of oneself of the revolution of in but not in a way uh, Mao would contend I would argue from the quotations that we had selected earlier that not in a way that prevents decisive action but in one that just uh, provides space and opportunity for uh, genuine critique and improvement and right application of that idea can sometimes be tougher in practice than it is in theory. You know, one of the things you just mentioned that reminds me of another part of the text um, on page 263, you had mentioned the, that one of the people that they interview, you know, had gotten a hold of some of these ideas from an ethics studies class. And as the author argues, you know, like a lot of these overlaps um, helped actually introduce the ongoing struggle for ethnic studies in the United States. And what I find fascinating, and I agree with, and I know it's something also that Sharice has touched on, she touched on in the earlier um, interview that I did with her back at like the very beginning of Left POC, um, is that there is, there's this constant tension between an ethnic nationalism and like left, like leftism, you know what I mean? Like this idea of the communal um, versus the individual ethnic group and and how sometimes the emphasis on the ethnic nationalism can paper over a lot of the class differences between members of that group, right? So something we see oftentimes is like a tension between poor black and wealthy black people um, and, and wealthy black people like not understanding the, the problems that are, that poor black people are facing and then speaking for them, you know, instead of, instead of sometimes advocating for their needs, they speak over them. Um, and I think that this, if you look on page uh, 263, the author talks about um, sometimes the chair, the quotations from Chairman Mao being this like fascinating book because it also, some people interpreted it to be a form of like a, an avenue to ethnic nationalism, right? So instead of necessarily recognizing it as a communist tool, they interpreted it as a sort of like black nationalist text, right? Or, but, you know, Chinese in this case, but to apply it to black nationalism. And what's mm -hmm. fascinating is that's also what ends up happening with the Black Panthers. Um, I think especially in historical memory, like a lot of people in the U.S., when you talk about the Black Panthers, I think they're just like an, 
like a black nationalist group. And they don't recognize or even remember or care to learn about the communist ideals that these groups had. Like it wasn't just about fighting for black people trademark. You know what I mean? It was like mm-hmm. also fighting for these communist ideals, advocating for the poor, um, working with other groups as well who were deprived and impoverished and stuff like that. So there's a lot of like, a lot of the political ideology is left out of what the Black Panthers did and their legacy. And that's intentional. Um, and he goes on to say that um, these tendencies toward uh, multiculturalism and ethnic nationalism, nevertheless, uh, quote, uh, sorry, the tendencies, quote, especially imminent in U.S. assimilation of Maoism, also serve to displace class struggle and key Marxist political conceptions, such as the importance of building a mass working class organization. So I think sometimes, like, we have to be able to bridge that gap. I think the Black Panthers really did do a good job of that. They were trying to do that. Um, but as they were, you know, hunted by the U.S. government and the FBI and things like that, it very much deteriorated that process. And I think it made them become more and more separate from other communities, right? And that was intentional. I don't think it was something that they intended, but it's something certainly that the state intended. They wanted to demonize them and make them look like they were just like, the, you know, basically like what I've heard some people say is the black KKK, you know? And that's mm-hmm. what I grew up thinking they were. Like that's, you know, that's what you see on television. I think things have changed now. But when I was little in the 80s and 90s, you know, that the idea of the Black Panthers was like, oh no, they were a separatist group. They were bad, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And they weren't bad. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> not at all. And like they were very peaceful. And like even, even their stuff that, you know, you hear about all these gunfights and stuff like that, they were defending themselves against the police that were literally picking them off, killing them. So I think that and it was about community defense, not attack, right? There's there's a very distorted image of them, but I think also there's a very distorted understanding on purpose. And it's also a, unfortunately something that's filtered into like these programs, because again, something that Sharissa said, something that I have noticed is that a lot of these ethnic studies programs completely downplay economics and in a way that's to the detriment of these programs, I think. And, and it's, it's scary to be honest, because, you know, I don't enjoy the fact that a lot of academics of color are stuck just talking about the cultural and then they don't really engage or some of them don't engage the economic and the radical and, and kind of end, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it, it ends up being this like neoliberalization of history, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. And I mean, to the point of defense is like, this is in the context of still within their living memory of white people coming and raising entire towns of successful black people because they didn't like that, that happening. So like, right. and, and so like the bombing and the, the burning the burnings of churches and buildings and all these types of things is like this they were under attack (laughs) by an america that did not want them to just really even exist and i mean baldwin talks a lot about this and so on and so forth but like there was a it was a very contentious time at all and it's like but you'll probably you probably saw plenty of things about motown which was at the same time and in the same place and essentially in the same neighborhoods as some of these things were happening and uh and these figures were coming and going into but you'll hear more like you don't get to hear as much about the influence of the radical black movement on the the success of those towns and of the people that succeeded there and like that was touched on a little bit in this which was i thought was particularly uh 
I don't know, uh, it was it was inspiring, I guess, was talking about black arts movement and mm-hmm. how that jumped, how that coincided with this revolutionary time and how influential the revolutionary stuff was. But it isn't really captured in a lot of what ended up becoming mainstream pop history of that time frame. Uh, one of the things that uh, kind of spoke to we've talked a bit about revolutionary optimism, one of the quotes on page 261 that touched on that and made me think about it was uh says a people building a national movement needs the conviction that history is on their side and the ultimate victory is certain because as people they have an inherent dignity which no amount of brutalization and degradation can destroy and i think to like for me what i hear in that is echoes of uh kind of mao's what's perceived as his uh you know frivolous nature or disregard for the dangers of nuclear weapons. I also hear Hampton in, you know, if like, essentially, why don't you die for the people? And if you're like, if you're not fighting for liberation, then you're dead already. And these kinds of concepts is what I hear or what I see in, in echoes of that is that uh, like, it doesn't matter. Like the only way they can destroy us in the movement and the revolution is to destroy everything. And right. so, so as long as, as long as there's people breathing, the revolution lives and, and liberation, the dream of liberation lives. And so like uh, it, the inspiration that that provides is and the security it provides in success, I think is uh, I think many of the texts that we've engaged with have argued is necessary to sustain the revolutionary spirit. And that because it can be so horrific. You know, you can see cities bombed. You can see people shot in their homes. You can see all these horrific acts of violence and it can be very dissuading from the idea that you will ever succeed. And so uh, there has to be some sort of undergirding uh, belief in the inevitability of success uh, despite the consequences, but not let that dissuade you from active engagement and pursuit as in it's inevitable regardless of what you do but it just means that because you must you will find yourself fighting for liberation the the struggle for liberation will inevitably go on until we reach that liberation and then even then uh i think the 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 authors that i relate to most remind us that it's the the critique and self-reflection doesn't stop there Right. No, it doesn't. It can't. <laughs> it definitely can't. Um, you know, that what you were just saying reminded me as well, like of certain aspects of this chapter where he like, I, I want to go back just a tad to talking about the arts movement. So this is something, again, where you kind of see the split between Detroit and the Bay Area, um, because in Detroit, you know, again, the Boggs, uh, the couple, they were really doing a lot to say, like, instead of just supplying this politically, why don't you also like add this to your art? You know, like what are, what are the ways that we can read Mao through our art production um, and things that are going to be even like the art, the author argues that that was even more of an influence um, or like, I'm sorry, that Mao was even more of an influence on the black arts movement. And I think, you know, what you had mentioned earlier about like Motown and singers and things like that. Another sad thing about the retelling of those stories is that they also definitely downplay the politics of a lot of these artists, right? I think the only one that we see on a regular basis, um, just thinking about like popular figures from the time whose politics are emphasized is people like, um, you know, Muhammad Ali. He's not a performing Mm -hmm. artist. Of course, he's an athlete, but I think he's one of the few people that when you look back on, 
you know, what was going on in, at the time and who was saying what. He's the one of the few Black figures that Hollywood has allowed to be remembered as politically radical, right? Um, yeah, I feel but, like it comes with the requirement of being indisputably the best at something, you know? It's like yeah. when you're indisputably <laughs> the best, then then there has to be some big recognition that you can have political opinions too, but continue. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we know that if he were alive today, I mean, it would just be like what we see with Colin Kaepernick and others, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I would argue that, you know, even like Colin, Ka not, not, not to knock on Colin Kaepernick, I think he's, we're seeing his transfer transformation in real time, which is like kind of amazing, you know? Um, but I think Muhammad Ali in a lot of ways was even more radical than Kaepernick. Um, and we get a taste of that, but still, I, I think he's one of the few where we're kind of like, okay, we at least get like maybe 50% of his radicalism comes out in movies and, and books and stuff about him and his legacy. Um, and I wonder, you know, I, cause we saw the co-opting of Kaepernick's movement, like immediately, pretty much. I mean, a lot of people are like, no, no, he's honoring the flag or like he's honoring the troops. Right? It was just a weird, like almost immediate, right, reframing mm -hmm. of what he was doing. And now it's all about him getting a job in the NFL. And this is like among black people, right? They're talking about his job prospects more than they're talking about why he was kneeling. You know, like it's a very strange, mm -hmm. very quick transition that we've seen happen or transformation. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention really quickly was uh, – I thought it was fascinating too in the chapter where the author talks about the fact that Mao was not just like a cool person to read, right? It wasn't just like, oh, Mao is like, oh, we like what he's saying here. It makes sense that it kind of be applied to our community. But he was also, his read, his writings were like an av like a window to black internationalism at the time, which was like super fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, just because like, imagine your book having that much of an impact. You know, like imagine a couple of quotes from you ending up leading to like certain groups making all these connections around the world to other groups that are engaged in revolutionary activity. And so the author kind of mentions the fact, like, of course, I'm not saying that Mao is the only thing that made them look outward, but it's one of the things that helped them kind of like take these international struggles and connect more closely with them. Um, and it also, you know, like I think helped introduce different aspects that they can more closely relate to than just Marx. And this is saying this as someone who recognizes the importance of Marx to the Black Panthers and they recognized it. You know what I mean? I'm, they are not, they were not saying we disavow Marx because he's European, which is something that I hear people say nowadays. That's like kind of messed up. Um, but it's just that we're reading a bunch of different people and we're reading a bunch of different people that apply to different groups of us in different ways at different times. And that's important. Um, the other thing really quickly was uh, I think you had mentioned challenges, you know, to these groups, um, one of them being the state, of course. But I think a challenge that the author brings up that's fascinating to me, too, is the challenge from other leftists and particularly white leftists, which, again, we see so much of this in the current day um, uh -huh. <laughs> where there's this that there was a sort of another revolutionary group that had been founded around the same time, you know, sort of an ally of the black Panthers that was saying, we have to make this all about class and we don't want you guys like veering into this ethno nationalist, um, you know, tendency. And they like ended up not supporting the Viet the Vietnamese and the Vietnam war and all these things. They kind of like took on an anti-revolutionary quality just by virtue of their, their anger or like resentment of any sort of discussion of race or, or nationality, which is a shame, you know, like, 
And like the, I see a lot of that nowadays. Like what people don't seem to recognize is a simple fact that like talking about race doesn't mean you're not recognizing class. You can talk about both and you should be talking about both at the same time. Um, and especially in a country like the United States where our class system is very much built upon the legacy of slavery, the vestiges, economic vestiges and institutional vestiges of slavery and things like that. Like you can't disconnect them. And I just, I don't know, it's, it's frustrating to me that people don't recognize this um, and how it could be more useful actually and how leftism can have a greater impact if people actually did connect these dots, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, particularly where I saw that in in uh, in the text on page 259, it talks about uh, essentially black labor workers in uh, Detroit, which people will be familiar probably uh, at some point they heard about, you know, the auto workers, you know, those auto workers in this time frame were very important. Detroit was huge. This was a this was a very central point of focus for United States history. So again, this is just another place where I'm like, oh wait, how come I haven't heard about the League of right. Revolutionary Black Workers? <laughs> how come I didn't hear about Dodge Revolutionary Union movement? Then I find out what they are. And it's like, oh, okay, that's why I didn't hear about them. Because yeah. we, we don't want those things. And one of the things that they were tackling was essentially those dynamics playing out within the labor movement, which has always been an ongoing issue within labor movements. Um, not necessarily, you know, qualified to speak at any, you know, uh, depth on it or anything, but just my experience in reading about uh labor movements this has always been an issue because while there's solidarity around the working class and the worker it's uh very easily uh i don't know sidelined for bigotry and uh, uh, xenophobia and various other aspects that pushed uh, particularly black workers and various other workers out of these unions or influential positions within them and so while workers were enjoying uh rather notable gains uh, throughout the early 60s and into the 70s before they started to wane into Reagan and such. Uh, A lot of black workers were not being uh, included in those. And so it speaks to this constant struggle of uh, class solidarity, but with recognition of the unique implications of race in America. Yeah, there's a there's the part that you mentioned about drum, which is that Detroit group is so fascinating. I mean, you're right. It's definitely like missing in our, (laughs) missing in our educational backgrounds um, respectively, but I definitely thought that that part was, was cool. And again, it shows, it shows the, the ways that like groups that are often left out of history and that are often like just completely dismissed in the present too, right? Like they're not seen as revolutionary actors can obviously engage in these things. You know, I hear a lot of like, oh, but people are so busy and like the working class is so busy and they have all these things to do. But like, if you look at the past, these people are factory workers. I mean, they're not, they're not like sitting up getting a a degree at some sort of, you know, fancy university, right? They're working with their hands in a factory and yet they're coming together for reading groups. Like it's amazing, you know? And I think that there's, there's often this like very elitist, I would argue, dismissal of um, certain groups of people partially because of their class, but also because of their race. And I think the intellectual capacity of certain groups is ignored or completely, you know, diminished because of those things. The other thing you mentioned too, that was fascinating about this group and is, is just this idea of like the labor movement sort of not addressing um, everything fully. And I think this is why I get a little bit tense when I hear some leftists now, predominantly white ones, where they want to make everything about unions and I'm like, and unfortunately, if you look at the history of unions in the United States, they were rife with 
um, elitism and not elite, not elitism in the way we think of it as like, okay, rich people versus poor people or formerly educated people versus not, but elite in the sense where they were kind of like party leaders that became, you know, like almost legends in their own right in some ways, you know, and there was a legacy there that I think, um, you know, it was like, you're from a union family or from a union community, whatever. Um, but there was racism and intimidation and whatnot within these unions that I think people have not fully addressed. Um, and, and there's kind of a rose colored historicization, historicization, I can't say that word, um, of, of unions that I think tries to downplay that stuff. And what we should be doing is looking at it and addressing it and making sure that as we build a union movement for the present, we're not repeating those same mistakes. And people don't want to like address those mistakes because they there's already enough negative stuff against unions, you know, like corporations already shit on unions a lot. But mm-hmm. we have to be careful to not replicate those same errors that exclude people who are are, you know, like ultimately the vanguard, if you think about it, you know, of the present. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Irishman on Netflix right now. And it's like, just think about how many black people are in that movie. And it's like, that was the union movement. That's half of that's the idolization. And it's like, there's, it's so much of what you're talking about there and, yeah. and why it's scary for, uh, I think for a lot of people of color that find themselves not as ready to go headlong into the, the idea that unions are going to fix everything. Right. And there's also, I mean, there's a similar, similar track with like the new deal, Right. Um, mm-hmm. there are certain aspects of the new deal. I mean, the new deal was amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not, not shitting on the new deal. Um, and I recognize there's a lot of nuance that happens with regard to like how things were applied and misapplied and why certain groups were excluded, et cetera. And some things were out of FDR's control, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot, I mean, there's, there's a whole history there. Um, but I think that we still have to be honest with ourselves about where things went wrong and make sure that whatever we're doing in the present has fail safes to, to make up for those differences. You know what I mean? Like to make up for those gaps, to fill in those gaps, I should say, um, so that people aren't left behind. But I think that's why having these people who are at the bottom, basically dictating things, like they're the ones, they're the ones who have to tell us what their needs are. And I think that's why it's fascinating to read this chapter and look at the ways that, you know, these, these black auto workers in Detroit were, were leading reading groups and talking about their struggle and, and, and articulating it in ways that, you know, that were resonating with the larger community. And we need more of that, not less of it. You know, I don't think we need, like, I I shouldn't be leading a revolution. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) I, and I'm not saying that I'm rich. I mean, I make like no money a year, basically. I'm on that free 99 student budget. But like, at the end of the day, it's not a revolution for me to lead. I can like, you know, put some footsteps down or some crumbs or whatever and be like, oh, yo, check out this book. But at the end of the day, my struggle is very different from someone who's a retail worker or a McDonald's worker or whatever. And I have to be the one listening at that moment. You know what I'm saying? I don't need to be the one leading it. And I think this is where we get confused because if you look at a lot of the left movements right now in the United States that are getting traction, who are they led by? You know, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, not to knock them, and I think what they're doing in many cases is good, promising. But if you're not connecting with the people who you say that you mean to serve, 
there's something wrong. You know, like who makes up you like people don't want to hear that. I think they get offended by it and think that I'm saying like destroy DSA or something. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm saying that it's a it's a glaring problem if your left organization is predominantly white or predominantly fill in the blank, you know, like group that has economic power, social power. What why is there a disconnect? And what communities are you afraid to go into and work with people? And what communities are you ignoring? And what even like, if not intentional, right? What is it about your messaging that's not resonating with people? What is it about your time that you meet or whatever? You know, like there's so many factors, but people are not, I don't think, I don't think they're doing a good enough job of like stepping back and saying, having the humility to say, this is not my revolution to lead. I can start something, but I'm not going to be the one to finish it. And it might, it might jeopardize my comfort, you know? Yeah. I think that's one that, uh, especially in the heart of the empire is hard to kind of confront and recognize and deal with is like, you know, a real revolution that results in equity might jeopardize comforts that you have become accustomed to. And like, that's, you, you got to kind of confront that, deal with it. <laughs> and how you how you confront that and what conclusions you draw from that will kind of decide which side you're on. <laughs> sure. So going to- a little bit towards the second half of this chapter, the author starts talking about um, Japanese and Chinese Americans in the Bay Area and also in New York um, that were working with Black groups that were reading and disseminating Mao. And there's one reference to um, someone whose last name I believe is Yip, um, who ends up starting with some of his comrades, like a, a bookstore, community bookstore, where they would have um, major discounts on a lot of the authors of color who were, you know, putting out um, like internationalist texts, revolutionary texts. And I just, you know, like, again, I, I'm always amazed at, the efforts that people make in the past. And again, I guess, I guess maybe someday like people will look back on a podcast like this and say like, Oh, look what they were doing. That was so cool. Whatever. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like you're really having that much of an impact. Um, And I sometimes wonder like, you know, how did people feel (laughs) when they were starting these, these book clubs or bookstores or whatever, and like giving out free copies of Mao or Amilcar Cabral or whomever else, you know, like did they really fully understand the impact of what they were doing at the time? Um, And I don't know. I just, I think that like, again, one of the things that comes up over and over is the ways that these other non-European actors, you know, like political actors were having such an influence on people. And that's why like, if it messes (laughs) with me (laughs) that today people refuse to read this stuff. Like you still have reading groups where the focus is entirely on, like Marx and Engels and nobody else. And it's like, dude, maybe this is part of the problem. Like maybe this is why you're not attracting certain groups of people because they don't see themselves in this. And you can like, you can read Marx and see yourself in it. Like I had to read Das Kapital for a class and it's, it's amazing. You know what I mean? Like I'm sitting there like highlighting the whole book, but the issue is that you have to be taught those connections. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you have to have someone say like, this is how this applies to your life. This is a dude writing from, you know, a European country hundreds of years ago, but this is how it applies to what's happening now. And like, I the, the thing that stands out to me the most is like all the stuff in the beginning of the book about 
um, you know, like enclosure. That that part is like I think just so relevant right now because you think about the real estate booms and gentrification and all this stuff. If you think about land land enclosure and removal, and how people are excluded from land that they till, you know, like we don't have farmers in quite the same way anymore. But you know, you have people who've lived in communities for like their whole lives. They've made the community, and then they're being pushed out. And these sorts of things are relevant right now. And it's just a matter of someone maybe saying, make this connection, check out, like, consider how this applies to your life. And I don't think just, I don't think there's enough outreach being done or something to make those connections. And and I also think that if maybe people like were reading, I don't know, like Asada Shakur instead of just Marks, maybe they could do that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's <laughs> like uh, when I first started, like before I started doing the podcast or anything, and basically Bernie Sanders didn't win the nomination. I'm like, okay, so we're doomed. What do I do now? Uh, I was like, what, it was looking around and it was like revolutionary ideas. And I was like, okay, you know, there's this uh, DSA group. They seem to be getting some popularity, socialism, communism. I don't really understand what these terms mean beyond the western propaganda i've been indoctrinated with so i'm just gonna fumble around and see what i find and it was didn't take long to figure out that the like all of these established or whatever spaces were full of white people studying white scholars about white scholarship about white experience about right (laughs) it was like that was not it wasn't i wasn't learning there wasn't there wasn't a space and and maybe there might be a reference to a, a some sort of person of color but no engagement or depth or analysis or like it was it was always just like hey this black person agreed with us you should agree with us too <laughs> <laughs> that's how it was used and it was like well that's that's not quite what i was getting from that person it was like i was actually when i read that i i read this and they're like oh no 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 what it means was and it's like okay this uh... is this is not this is not no this is wrong it's like and so in exploring for the space i didn't really find something that felt adequate for what i wanted or what i needed and so i was like well if i'm gonna make it i might as well share it so and you know and i was immensely thankful and still am that wendy has uh, helped with the her platform and done all the work that she has and helping making this a reality but like <laughs> the and now that i've engaged with the theory i know that i got to engage with the practice and like uh engaging in that is going to be another step forward and something that like is going to be ominous but it, these texts and all the points that you were just making help me understand and realize how necessary it is uh not just for me but for people that are in a similar situation or will be in the future uh as i was then and i don't want to leave them stranded knowing how helpless that felt and it's also you know like that that what you just said also made me think about something else that comes up in the text, which is a lot of a lot of the people who were like interviewed um, and the thing, the archival stuff that the author goes through of interviews of these sort of radicals from the time. One of the things that they kept saying was that it was Mao's support and China's support in general of like independence movements in Africa, post-colonial movements in Africa, and then also his statement that he had written or sorry, the the speech that he had given about the Negro situation in the United States, right? And like has, how to express solidarity to oppressed peoples in other parts of the world that made them start paying attention to him. So it's like you, 
you have to send out a message and it cannot be one of condescension. <laughs> it needs right. to be one of solidarity and also not solidarity in a way where like you're still actively oppressing the people that you want to work with. Like that's another problem that I think comes up a lot that people kind of ignore. Like how do you reach a member of your community when you're like actively gentrifying their community? You know what I'm saying? Like you can't really do that and have it, have a straight face in the process. You know, like there's a, it, it, it reminds me also as well, like a lot of the stuff that we read from colonizer and the colonized, you know, like you can, how can you be the colonizer and then work with the colon, like pretend to be the advocate for the colonized. So sometimes it's a matter of approach as well that I think makes the difference here. But it just reminds, it just made me think of that part of the chapter, like how they started really paying attention to Mao's work when they saw that he indeed had expressed solidarity. And I think also really quickly, um, connecting what Charisse had mentioned to us and then kind of like connecting the dots in general between Du Bois and a lot of these movements. You know, he was another person who really actively was engaged and friends even with Mao. Um, and I think kind of made other black people pay attention and say like, huh, that's interesting. Like what's up with this guy, you know, like kind of pillar of the community, if you will. Why is he making connections with China? What is, what is the, the potential, um, you know, of, of forging these sorts of relationships. Uh, one other thing I wanted to address, and then I'm going to shut up, <laughs> is that someone had, who apparently had not listened to any of our previous podcast episodes about Mao or bothered to like look into what we say about the text to read, uh, had commented on the page on the left POC timeline, basically that like, you know, when I had posted a picture of uh, Du Bois with Mao, they said something about like uh, Du Bois being like being an apologist for a homicidal maniac or something like that. Oh. Um, and I just want to say again, I will. I would like to stress this. This person is probably not listening to the podcast because he got blocked immediately. Um, but one of the things that I stress over and over whenever we do any sorts of readings, and especially in this case, is the fact that we're reading it for its historical importance. We're reading it for like we're reading it as an object, like a historical object, right? And while we may not agree with every single act that anyone has ever done in their entire life, we also can recognize the significance of what they're saying. We do this on a regular basis when it comes to like the forefathers, quote unquote, forefathers of the United States, right? Like how many mm -hmm. times have we had to read the freaking constitution or, you know, film like some book written by Jefferson and then we also have a side note where we're like, by the way, he raped his slaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he was right about this one. It's like a broken clock situation, you know, like I'm not trying to compare Mal to Jefferson, by the way. So other people won't be mad at me about that. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is at these moments when you are looking down the barrel of a gun, quite literally in some cases, um, you want allies around the world. And I think you can recognize the significance of someone expressing solidarity with your your group as you're facing oppression and also recognize the ways that they fought oppression in their own situation. And I think that like it would we would be really wrong to be like Mao's should just be thrown in the trash and never discussed because we didn't agree with all of his governmental decisions. You know what I'm saying? Like this is not the way if if everything is about someone being problematic and we're we should, we can never read anything. You know what I'm saying? Like we could literally mm -hmm. never read any text. We should just, I don't know, like throw away all books because everyone that's ever said anything in history, and especially if you apply the same lens as 
of now to the past. I don't, I don't think it works all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like I can easily say slavery was wrong. There were some slave owners that wrote good stuff about freedom, but they were being contradictory. And there were also people who protested them at the time and we should read their work too. And that's what we do here. Like we don't read all from the same tendencies, like same political tendencies. Everything's on the left, but we don't read only communists and we don't read only, you know, fill in the blank. We try to read a good mix of people um, and have people on as guests to discuss a variety of tendencies. Um, And I certainly on the page post stuff from a variety of tendencies, be they anarchists, communists, Maoists, fill in the blank. Um, So I think this kind of limited view of, of these historical figures and the work that they produced, and in particular, the ways that their work was meaningful to other groups is a real shame. Like you can't have that limit. That's such a limited view of history that you just don't read anything. And if that's your criteria, you can't read anyone or anything ever. Yeah, it's a limitation that's just uh, unrealistic and and not practical and not applicable to, like you said, our forefathers or a variety of uh, people that we still have to study in order to achieve certain accreditations in academia, you know, like, right. <laughs> and you have to attend campuses or whatever with statues or in buildings named after people that are historically known for participating or committing genocide or you know any of these various things like we're inundated with this type of like dual nature of humanity and the that you know celebration of horrific people so it's like the if if the contention is that Mao is x y or z it's like that then we shouldn't be able to engage with any potentially uh informative uh thoughts that he provided just doesn't match any of the the material conditions that we exist in so it it doesn't seem practical or practicable to me so in that aspect and for me you know it's like i'm still learning about all the atrocities that have been committed in my name so i like (laughs) like learning about those ones is somewhat secondary or tertiary for me but then also like but it i still have a recognition of wanting to understand historically how or why things happened and how or why I may think or believe something. You know, I thought a lot and believed a lot of things about Cuba growing up that have been, I've been disabused of as part of this. And, you know, this is like one of the other things you mentioned, just like the self-reflection, self-criticism. And like one of the terms that came to my mind that existed in my vocabulary before reading this was, you know, decolonizing your mind and just kind of, there's just so much in there, so much indoctrination about so many things that it's really like, it possibly causes me to be overly defensive or whatever of, of, uh, of ideas or groups or whatever, just, but it, I don't really view it as defensive. It's just like, before I go on the attack for some other entity or group or identity or whatever, I want to understand better what it is, the story that they were telling first, right. like sans this kind of, uh, you know, this, I don't know, projection onto it of how it, how, how it's evil and all these other things and it's like let me understand why they thought it was a good idea and it's like i had to do that with a lot of other horrific ideas throughout history in my western education to achieve various accreditations so it's like to do that with this i mean i've already captured more from this than i captured from a lot of those uh people or events or whatever and so like it it it's it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny to me from just a critical perspective dialectical and all that like so 
that's where I am on that. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, to me, it's just like a completely disproportionate response to like posting a picture of two historic <laughs> figures. That's Twitter though. <laughs> that literally right? did meet each other. And that just so happened to be the focus of our interviews and discussions from this week, this month, but whatever. Yes, it is just Twitter. Um, but you know, I, the other thing I just wanted to add, um, and then feel free to, you know, go on whichever track you want on this. Um, but I thought the closing of the chapter was also fascinating because um, he talks about briefly that Mao's work was also sort of like, it sort of foretold a lot of things about where China would end up in terms of its, like the devolution of the revolution, if you will, um, what some have argued is a turn to capitalism, right? Um, or a turn to at least principles of the Chinese Communist Party that don't necessarily align with the vision that that Mao and his contemporaries had in the foundation and proliferation of communism in China. Um, and I think that those are, this is another reason why reading this stuff is important. You know what I mean? Like going back to the source and kind of thinking about what things have changed, um, what things haven't changed and, and how to reflect on that, you know, like as I, I don't want to say as like comrades or allies in this, but I think just kind of as we, how do I put this sensitively? I think that sometimes we have a tendency to look at a revolution and think that it's continuing in the present just because someone is against the United States, right? Mm. Um, and at the same time, there are people in some of those places that are saying, well, it's not quite what we wanted when we founded this group, or it's not quite what we expected. We need to fix this and that. Um, and then I think I, sometimes I see a full on demonization of that internal criticism when it's not, I don't feel it's always our place to do that. Like on, on the one hand, we, I think are in a special position as people living in the West that what we say often has more weight. Um, and that can be good in terms of expressing solidarity, but I think it's also important for us to reflect on the fact that like people in these countries also have a right to express themselves and comment on what they see as changes that were made, perhaps not in their best interest. Now I am not talking about, for example, cases like Bolivia or Venezuela or whatever, where we're like, we should go and then defend the the fascists. Like, that's not what I'm saying <laughs> to be clear. My point is just that I think these kinds of moments that come up where we're looking at historical texts or we're looking at foundational texts of certain political ideologies, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that revolutions change and there are counter-revolutions, there are all sorts of mutations that happen over time, and there are all sorts of changes that happen in response to threats to those um, revolutions. And what we do with that, you know, is up to the person, but I think it's, it's something that we have to always keep in mind that nothing is static about revolution, right? And I think sometimes some people are stuck in this idea where if it was revolutionary in 1975, then it must be revolutionary now because it's the same name of the party. And that's not always the case. Um, and it's something that, you know, just like as a, as a food for thought thing, it's, I'm not saying like go and then become a propagandist for the U.S. government. <laughs> so, but I, mean, <laughs> I mean, in the sense where you just have to also, I think, constantly recognize that, that, or you have to recognize that revolutions are not static. Revolutions are ongoing. Revolutions have moments of regression. Revolutions have moments where they're not doing so great and they're doing stuff that might be counter-revolutionary um, and that they should be 
you know, held responsible for by their people. And so I think we just have to be mindful of that. And I think that last bit of the chapter, as well as what you had mentioned about Black Panthers, who also became counter-revolutionaries, and what is brought up in the chapter about certain academic studies and groups that came out of this process that also became somewhat counter-revolutionary. We have to kind of always reflect on that and how to get things, I guess the better thing is like how to get stuff back on the revolutionary track, right? That's where our focus, we should be thinking about that. Like instead of constantly just like blindly defending something in the name of revolution, understand how revolutions change and deviate and how can we get them back to at least in our own country and our own communities back on the track that they should be going in a progressive direction. I think that's an important part. And I think one of the things, one of the kind of quotes that came out of the conclusion that summarized that for me is uh, talking uh, from Zhao Ming uh, says, defines democracy as people's self-education and self-organization. What is democracy? She asks, it is uh, self-confidence in discoursing on all important issues of the nation and the world and being able to get angry about them. It is a daily atmosphere of participation, involvement, and effective talk. It is a sense of responsibility as the master of the house in this discursive process. There are no boundaries for a thinking person. Anything can be put on the table for discussion. Truths fear no discussion. Truths should stake out a position and meet objections. And that kind of touches to the point I raised earlier about uh, capitalism, imperialism's inability to confront uh, something like the text of Mao and having to sequester it and hide it away because it's not true. So it fears discussion. It fears meeting objection because it doesn't hold on to uh, a truth for the people, for the masses and doesn't have their interests at heart. And it can only maintain that lie under the, the, the exclusion of contrary ideas and contrary beliefs and contrary systems that can be presented as an alternative. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's it's very intentional, right? I mean, it's not it's not like some sort of accident that this is hidden from us. Like, it's, oh, we mm -hmm. just discovered that Mao wrote a book that was like there were billions of copies made of. You know what I mean? Like, it's not <laughs> it's not something that was by happenstance. So yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Any other thoughts that you had about either the intro conclusion or the chapter, or just like I guess I don't know reflections about the book. The book itself or a little red book? Uh, I'm tempted to try and obtain a copy of the black book, which was yeah. a compilation of uh, quotes from W.E. Du Bois and other contemporaries of the time. And just to see what kind of things it had. I, my initial search didn't show up too much, maybe one or two copies existing on eBay like sites, but I couldn't tell to the veracity of them or anything. So I'm very curious as what, what was entailed in there. And just uh, like kind of if anybody had any firsthand experience with it, like if there's any still living revolutionaries that ha may have seen or distributed or held the copy at some point and had some insight to it. That's just a curiosity I had that was sparked by this text. And then I feel like I'm I, sorry to interrupt ahead. you. I feel like I've seen a PDF of it. Um, I can kind of dig around um, not only on the Internet, but I want I want to say there must be some sort of like archival version of it perhaps um a lot of the stuff that's at the national archive is digitized um and you can search online so i can i can try to dig around and see if i if i can find a copy of it but i feel i could have sworn i've seen a pdf of it um but yeah we can i can i can revisit this just send me a reminder at some point um and we can definitely see if we can get it for future discussions 
But anyway, continue. Uh, one of the other things that just kind of stuck out from the selections is uh, the at our discussion as well is just the dynamic between black revolutionary movements and uh, Asian revolutionary movements. And you mentioned earlier just kind of a dynamic. Uh, and I feel like one of the ways that that was expressed and like propagandized is like when I think like if I were to think of black Asian relationship or relations, I would think of uh what comes to my mind is the representation of the shop owner and the loiter mm -hmm. rather than two revolutionaries co coordinating on revolutionary anti-us government like acts which is really something like one it's just cooler in my opinion yeah. and two like two it's not you know spreading these big bigoted ideas and so on and so forth and then three it's also a sign of solidarity as rather than a sign of division and so like i feel like that for me kind of encapsulates uh, a lot of these concepts we're talking about the how indoctrination and the erasure of history can provide and, and the propaganda can provide a conceptualization of a, of of history of a relationship that doesn't actually match the reality and so i can carry that into as living on the west coast and the northwest we have a large chinese population uh for, compared to many other states around the country and so like seeing solidarity building i i can see how uh understanding this text understanding that relationship can help me uh better relate to the communities in my area uh, and specifically in building solidarity across uh, cultural groups in ways that i wouldn't have even thought to broach before engaging with this kind of text or this kind of information in the historical nature of the relationship between radical movements uh in the on the west coast particularly and so like it's engaging in this material which helps me uh bring these ideas into practice and it's practice that helps me refine these ideas into even better versions uh that are more applicable to my particular circumstances or the circumstances and the material conditions of the people that are able to share this experience with us and so it's like you said it, it i don't know how it'll be viewed historically if at all but like i i managed to maintain some a uh, sensation of contribution to the cause and uh, like while I always want to do more I I am appreciative of what I might be able to contribute yeah I think on that note too there's there's some readings additional readings that I can include in the show notes so like I've read um in classes and stuff that have to do with um connections between black revolutionaries and Chinese people in China as well as Chinese Americans and Asian Americans as a larger community right um in the United States because there are also a lot of things at play that have to do with class the year that you migrated um the type of you know what I mean like there there's there are waves of immigration that happen in the U.S. um yeah I, I come from a military family so like uh I had a lot of uh, interaction with a large Vietnamese group because a lot of the GIs came over and uh there was a lot of Vietnamese women that came over and so there's a lot of Vietnamese right. Americans first generation second generation and like that that was my personal experience but then also in Seattle there's a large Chinese American influence and um population and uh tacoma is another major city in washington that has a large uh several different uh, asian communities within it right and those but like when those waves happen make a difference and the the vector by which they happen right like if you're coming over as a wife of a military member your understanding of what america means is going to be very different right um, it's exactly. going to be shaped by that the way you raise your children is going to be shaped by that um and i think even sometimes like a lot of the 
the arguably subversive tendencies of these women get gets downplayed a lot too, right? Like they're not all like brainwashed, submissive. I mean, because that's that's the image, mm-hmm. right? The outer outside image um, is one that very much downplays their own agency and politics and all that stuff. What they were doing, why they decided to do. There's a lot of stuff that's missing from this this discussion, and I think. Yeah. Um, needs to be further say, developed. <laughs> my unique experience allowed me to recognize that as like, so when I first was exposed to the idea is like all these uh, guys are want these submission, submissive Asian wives. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that, that's not necessarily the experience I had with the, 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 these type of people with the type of wives that you're describing or the superficially, the type of wives that's not the, experience. so like it's those contradictions and v- people's various life experiences give insight to different contradictions in different ways and i think the the communication of those and and sharing of those experiences helps us all develop a better understanding of what experiences people are having outside of ourselves which is important and when it comes to figuring what kind of how the revolution would look and how liberation looks and is would be manifested for those various groups of people and there's also i mean i know in new york for example there are several several Asian American groups that have done advocacy around policing, um, ending policing as we know it, ending prisons and things like that, that are very active with other black groups. Um, And again, they are minimized, you know, in the press, no one really talks about them. Like I remember when there was um, a police officer who was Asian American, you know, he, he murdered a black man um, in the stairwell of his apartment. And, um, you know, he was just like shooting into the air. The bullet ricocheted and shot this man in the chest and he died. Um, and then like when he was dying, the police officer was calling the police union instead of calling emergency personnel to come save this man's life. I and mean, it was really just a gruesome case. Um, and mm. on the one hand, there were some members of the Chinese American community in New York that were rallying behind and in support of this police officer. Um, and at the same time, there was a group of Asian American New Yorkers who were like, what the freak like this is crazy you know and they were they were rallying in support of the family um whose whose you know family member had been murdered by this guy um and so there's there's a degree to which i think a lot of those moments of solidarity in the present as well are really ignored downplayed not written about because what we saw more of in the press of course in new york was about oh these asian americans are racist look at them supporting this police officer blah 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 but that was only like one sliver of the community there were other members of the community that were in support of the victim you know and so i think that we have to be we have to also be careful not on both sides right Mm. to not replicate what these top-down messages are because this is intentional right there's Mm -hmm. there's a degree of anti-blackness within the chinese and asian american communities that comes from the press that comes from media that comes from u.s government propaganda and likewise there's anti-asian propaganda that is prevalent in the black community and black communities plural that comes from Mm. these stereotypes but also from some personal experiences right because there are tensions i mean the issue is that we're both both sets of oftentimes economically struggling groups fighting for a limited number of resources or at least resources that are made scarce on purpose to keep us in this constant fight you know um and then on top of that again battling stereotypes that lead us to further have these moments of tensions and so it's fascinating i think to look back at these past moments where there's so much 
solidarity happening between the two communities that it feels like now it's like a very different time, you know? Just one final thought that I had was about like uh, the influential aspect of black culture in America today. And the Boggs is talking about integrating these messages into art. And just like one of the things that came to my mind is like, there's not really any, like, as far as uh, the change, like new changing things in America, black culture is one of the most influential aspects or like avenues or vectors that we have into, into American culture is like the imitation of black culture. And so the more these ideas are reflected in black culture, the more likely it is to get even accidentally incorporated into white culture and spur further investigation, inquisitive uh, questions about, well, what does this mean? Why does it mean this? Why are people expressing these ideas? And so I, I just, in both keeping with revolutionary optimism and in influence in general, as far as uh, effectively spreading the message of, you know, these ideas and thought processes that can lead towards revolution. I think that black culture, black music, especially in black art is going to be critical. And like, I think that that can be celebrated and welcomed without being turned in, I guess, totally consumed by capitalism. Yeah. That's the difficult part. I would, I was about to say, because I think like what gets proliferated is often the like kind of not that deep um derogatory towards women you know whatever like Mm -hmm. it's it's not like the deep message yeah again not by accident if we listen to a lot of these artists talk about what what their producers and the people that pay them make them put out like a lot of this is intentional as well right exactly and so you know we have to be we would have to I think really have a more functional and powerful independent industry of sorts to get around this. Um, and right now we just, I don't, I, it's arguable whether or not we have it because especially when you think about what reaches not only white Americans, but like international communities is often the like watered down, just bad stuff. I mean, I, and I'm not, I'm not talking about in terms of talent because obviously a lot of these artists just have like, their music is good. Their production is good. They're good rappers in a technical sense, but the message is not quite what I personally would see as revolutionary. Like if you're calling me a hoe every 10 seconds in your song, I don't care what you're rapping about. That's, you know what I mean? Like that's right. not quite where we need to I just to want to see that space inundated with more revolutionary. Yeah. And like, and just so that you can't get around it and it's even in the poppy toony stuff. You all of a sudden, yeah. you, like you get a reference to Mao slipped in there or something, you know? You so gotta have like, like subversive stuff, like by actors. Right. It's definitely, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like under the radar in a way that people who are the managers and, and record labels and whatnot can't, quite get it mm-hmm. um and unfortunately i think that there is potential for that but i don't know if the artists themselves are willing to take that kind of risk yet quite yet yeah i, I think it's oh, the only hope is in the counter movement towards pop music in general which is you know people uh, at the local level building communities and like having success that way outside of labels and right. it's it's still in its nascent stages but the digital uh the digital nature of uh, the music industry has certainly aided that and made and created leaps and bounds. But I agree with you that we still got work to do on that venue, but uh, I am optimistic and hopeful that, uh, and I guess a little, uh, uh, I guess, a, I don't know, premonition idea that I think that 
it, it will be one of the key vectors in any uh, revolution if, looking back on it post a revolution in our utopia <laughs> <laughs> yes we laugh but we we are actually optimistic around here sometimes mm -hmm. so, yeah I, I agree with that i think it is i think art is a special special place for these sorts of things and we have so many examples of it right like historical examples of art being used as an avenue through which revolutionary ideas are discussed and, and disseminated um so I I don't want to limit that potential, like with by by being negative, you know. Like I agree with you that there is potential there, and it's just a matter of finding creative ways to to get it, um, to get it more to provocative. People. I was going to say more provocative graffiti. I think is a is one option that I think uh, I've seen. You know, like I follow a couple of Twitter accounts that show various graffiti artists from around the world, and it's like provocative graffiti. I think is very an effective means to to get to the masses be like without having to go through all the screens of capitalist indoctrination. Like, yeah. Yeah. So. Until they paint over it, which is what happened in Sao Paulo, sadly. Uh, oh um, yes. Yeah. There yeah. was like, so just again, like this is kind of a side note, but um, because of my research, I'm in Brazil a lot. And one of the cities that I'm in the most is Sao Paulo. And it's like, it's it not like it is the biggest city in Latin America in the Americas period. It's massive. Um, and they have a lot of graffiti there and a lot of graffiti artists that are super talented um, and that would often use graffiti as a means of political messaging. And um, and often, you know, would talk about poverty and sexism and racism and all this stuff through their art. And then they recently, the city recently elected a few years ago, um, a a guy who now is the governor by the name of uh, João Doria, and he's terrible and fascistic and whatever, supports Bolsonaro, et cetera. Uh, but he, one of the first things he did when he was elected to, as in the mayoral position, was to paint over a lot of the art. One of his like initiatives, wasting money, you know, methods of wasting money mm -hmm. was to paint, they, they called it like paint the city gray, basically. Uh, people pejoratively called it that. Uh, because it was, what he was doing was just like painting over all of the graffiti with like, you know, the typical colors of the buildings. Um, and the ironic part is that his wife uh, ended up working with like the Museum of Modern Art there or whatever to end up putting a lot of graffiti in the museum. And it wasn't like it wasn't subversive graffiti or anything, but she had she helped sponsor some sort of exhibit about graffiti in Sao Paulo at the museum. And the irony, of course, is that it was being painted over in in real time in the streets and then there were these photos of <laughs> you know graffiti oh, at the museum so that you had to pay you know? for to see you know so it's just it's it, but this is a good example of like marx's enclosure right because you take mm -hmm. something that's part of the commons you put it behind a paywall basically and in the case of the commons you know they put it behind an actual wall or a fence or whatever and then you police it heavily and then you make people pay for it and then you make it forbidden for them to go. So like the people who are doing the graffiti probably are not <laughs> going to be going to this museum. They wouldn't be welcome there. Right. right. Um, but they're the, they're the ones creating the art. So it's really, it's, it's like another way to apply theory to, <laughs> to these right. everyday things, you know? Um, but yeah. But anyway, I think, yeah, I think you're right that graffiti and art, uh, street art and things like that are definitely a way, one means of, you know, communicating these messages to a larger audience without them being, as you said, kind of immediately taken over by the capitalist 
uh, reach mm -hmm. and gaze. So yeah, I agree with that. I think also uh, music as well. I agree. I think, you know, I, I also often think about, and we mentioned this in the last episode, or at least the last episode on Mao, but I often think about like the limits, the limitations and reach of Twitter. Like it's really useful in a lot of ways of like to disseminate revolutionary messages, but only up to a point. Right. Because mm -hmm. I think sometimes when people do it like quote unquote too aggressively, they get snagged by terms of service and they get their accounts blocked or, you know, kicked off or whatever. Um, but there are, it, it's one, one of many uh, ways to reach people in, and I know for a fact that I have been reached by messages that I necessarily would not have had. I would not have necessarily had access to had I not been on Twitter. So I think that sometimes it, it can offer a, a means of communicating these things as well. The only problem of course, is that like the owners of Twitter are the ones who control what we see and don't see and when, and like can easily limit and exclude certain messaging. So, yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> capitalism's uh, arms reach deep into even revolutionary tools. So it's uh, important to keep that in mind and the limitations. And Twitter brings out a lot of the worst aspects of human interaction in general, too, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes so does. it's just, it's a lot harder to be so viciously mean to people when you're there in front of you a lot of the time. Not that that, that works for everybody or that that solves everything in and of itself, but uh, some of the kind of, snarky just uh, arguing to win is less prevalent in uh in person when people are a little bit more uh amiable to coming to a more uh, i guess uh compromise of a of a conclusion you know rather than everybody wanting to get the last word to prove that they were completely right and the other person was completely wrong <laughs> right yeah it definitely becomes a war of words and not so much a discussion on that side um, yeah, you start digging into each other's semantics and stuff, not <laughs> even trying to just because you want to be. And it's like, that's that's not the point. And when you're around each other, or and even more so around another a larger group of people that aren't also just trying to score points and, and prove who's the better insulter, that like people are like, well, okay, this is what you're saying, this is what you're saying. Here's the common ground. So if you guys want to argue, this is the part you're arguing about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you can, you can facilitate and move conversations in ways that you can't. Uh, online that you can in person and but online obviously has you know it's a lot easier for me to talk to somebody from malaysia and somebody from singapore and somebody from china at the same time than it is the if i were trying to do that in person right um yeah i mean agreed uh i just wanted to add before we leave that once again you can get all of these books that we reference um the little red book the little red book in its global history which is what we talked about today um, and also anything, you know, the show notes and whatnot, um, you can all find, always find in the actual podcast info itself. Um, so people who are looking for this, when you're using, if you're using iTunes or Spreaker or SoundCloud, if you click on wherever you find like more info about the, the podcast, you can see the books that I list, the read it's under readings and resources. Um, also any sorts of contact information or whatever, um, that's necessary for the podcast and any guests we have on. Um, the other thing is right now, at least last time I checked, we have 96 patrons on Patreon and I know there are only a couple more days to the year, 
But if we can make it to a hundred patrons, that sounds so pitiful, right? Like, can we make it to a hundred patrons? If we can make it to like, if four more people can donate a dollar or more a year, I'm sorry, a month, um, that would be amazing, actually, because as I've mentioned before in passing, but also in like, you know, just in general about the podcast, we like we're serious about giving back. Um, one of the things that we do, like our our money first goes to other content creators and lefty content creators to be more specific. Um, we support them by giving a Patreon donation to them. Um, the next place our money goes is obviously to paying for things like web storage and, um, you know, like any sorts of tech stuff that we have going on. Um, but then our money also goes to actually paying people like Ariadna, who's our amazing assistant to do um, transcripts and other assistant work for us. Um, and also I should say that I should just be even more transparent about this. We at left POC believe in a living wage. Um, and if this were like, if, if left POC were a full-time job for all of us, we would be making bank. Like we would actually be able to survive on it. So right now the hourly wage that I've set, um, for work <laughs> is $25 an hour. Um, which I don't get cause unfortunately, like I don't pay myself yet. Uh, but if we do get more funding one day, maybe I can. Um, so a lot of us are doing this like as a labor of love, but I'm also making sure that people who do work for left POC get paid fairly. And I raise the payment every time, like I raise the wage every time we have a major increase in Patreon support. So like what you guys give us is, it goes directly back into the podcast. Um, and so I just want to emphasize that and just, for those of you who have the dollar and it's like literally $12 a year, if you happen to have $12 a year to give us, we greatly appreciate it. Um, and we will put it to good use and you can always check us on our use too. Like if you want to see our financials, feel free to ask. I will happily send them to you because I keep a chart that I'm very bad at updating, but I do update. <laughs> um, the other thing we do, I forgot to mention for those of you who may not know, whenever we have a guest on the podcast, we donate to an organization of the guest's choice. Um, and we also give a small remuneration of the same amount um, to the guests for their time. So these are things, again, that like, I don't think any other podcast is doing. And, uh, you know, like, it would be nice to have as much support as humanly possible to continue doing that. And also to always keep our podcast episodes and all the content that's related to the podcast free. Because that's something else I just, I don't believe in putting knowledge behind a paywall. And I feel like everyone should always have access to whatever we're reading or discussing. Everyone should have access to it. And um, I don't believe in like charging people to hear you and me talk, right? Like, <laughs> so just putting that out there. Um, if you have a dollar or more to spare a month, please give it to us. We would greatly yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> especially like, if, 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 I'll put it this way. If you know somebody who is uh, contributing towards a more affluent podcast, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps no shade, uh, no shade. Yeah, it was like, I, don't, I don't want their dollar. Keep, keep sending them the, the dollar that you're sending them, but consider the value provided by uh, contributing a dollar to, to this podcast, or at least one in a similar vein. Like You can check the list of other podcasts that uh, Left Pocket so, supports and it's just like dude, there's people out here doing a lot of work that's trying to help get us uh, liberated uh, all of us and uh there's some other uh podcasts that are aimed more towards entertainment or you know whatever getting through the capitalist nightmare but uh i just want 
I just want if, if you're out there, just consider us, you know, like I, we're doing what we can. And uh, like, I, I greatly appreciate all the patrons that we do have. And then especially the messages from people uh, about how they're, uh, you know, engaging with the material that we're providing that that is very, very fulfilling on its own. But obviously, it also doesn't pay rent or put food on the table. <laughs> and so like, the more time that uh, or the more revenue that is generated through uh, this project, the less time that is uh, dedicated towards other capitalist endeavors to, in order to fulfill those material needs. And so I'm very thankful and and happily for every opportunity that I get to be able to do this. And I can only wish and hope that uh, through Patreon contributions and through uh, just other endeavors of my own that we're able to spend more time and more effort and put out even more con- great content for you guys to to reflect back and share your thoughts with us on. That's right. So with that said, thank you, Richard, as always. Thanks. Uh, thank you to everyone. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. As always, you can find more information about the podcast and the project by going to patreon.com slash leftpsc and of course interacting with us on social media by simply searching for leftpsc. Thanks so much again and have a good one.